You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we're chugging through uh, another episode this weekend. Uh, of course, it'll be multiple weekends for you guys, but we are going for it. We're still in Judges, and we're getting to the fun stuff. I was getting ready to say, I think this is where it starts to take off. Well, I say fun stuff. It's probably not fun for a lot of the people involved <laughs> in the story, but we get into like the Bible's, some of the Bible's sense of humor. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of its sense of not being afraid of graphic portrayals of murder. Right. I mean, and... Because it doesn't get much more graphic than the next few chapters coming up. Yeah. So we're today we're talking about Ehud and Eglon. Um, if you know this story, you know it's crazy. So Emily, why don't you go ahead and summarize <laughs> this story for us? Okay, so quick summary is... Of course, Israel's messing up again, and they're being oppressed by Eglon, who is the king of the Moabites. And Ehud, who is a Benjaminite, he's left-handed. He fashions a two-edged sword, and he sneaks it into the king's chambers, and he does this whole thing of deception and gets Eglon's attention and then literally stabs the crap out of the king. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the story. Uh, and of course, well, he and sneaks then, out. Yeah, he sneaks out, and then he rallies the troops, and they defeat the Moabites. So yeah, and, and then there's peace for eighty years. Right, and so kind of over the top. Uh, and when I say he stabs the crap out of him, I mean literally. That's that's what it boils down to. And we're going to get into that. Uh, this story is so over the top. It a lot of scholars just even refuse to believe that it might be actually true yeah it's it's pretty out there well and they they consider it to be a piece of satire uh that was added to the account now i think you you go ahead oh i was gonna (laughs) say and uh, well and we we think of satire and we think of strictly humorous we think of movies like well airplane burn um, after reading burn burn after reading (laughs) or uh uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, things like that. You know, those those are satirical, but those are tame satire compared to what <laughs> ancient satire used to be. Right. And ancient satire used to get people killed. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because, well, it was created for a political function. Mm-hmm. And then when you remember that these societies, you didn't have politicians, you had representatives of the gods. And so you weren't just, you know, saying something negative about the president, you are actually blaspheming a God and the God who sustained your nation and the, the crowds, the masses would not stand for it. And the, of course the officials wouldn't stand for it. Right. So if you're going to do satire in this time, you you might as well go for broke. Mm -hmm. And it's either another God was going to intervene, whether that was in supernatural uh, means and methods, like we see with God in Exodus and Pharaoh uh, or a, a god was going to intervene uh, in the guise of a king, a foreign king who came to your aid to support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you were not going to remain unscathed. Um, so you better have some protection, pretty much is what it amounted to. So even writing this book was kind of 
an act, or at least this particular account, was almost, it's a political statement. Sure. And I think we're all familiar with political satire and in yeah. that aspect. you know. Unfortunately, we're a little <laughs> too familiar with political satire nowadays. It's kind of hard to tell the difference between uh, real news and satires. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you. Um, so, uh, you know, as we start the account, we, we have, of course, it starts out, Israel is... Uh, Israel's yes. done what's evil in the sight of the Lord again. Yeah. And we should say we're in chapter three and yeah. we're starting at verse 12. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the people again do evil and God uh, brings an Eglon, the, the king of Moab. Now this is an unusual choice. And if you were an ancient Israelite reading this story, you would know that this was an unusual choice um, because they're family. Go back to Genesis 19. Moab is um, the descendant of Lot. And Moab is mm -hmm. born right after the uh, destruction of Sodom and, you know, Lot's Abraham's nephew, their family. Right. And matter of fact, in Numbers 22, um, that's where we have the fun story of Balaam and the, the donkey. Um, the king of Moab, Balak, at that point, tries to get Balaam to curse the, the Israelites and um, Balaam won't do it. In Deuteronomy 2, uh, verses 8 and 9, God tells Israel on their on their exodus journey, don't mess with the Moabites, mm -hmm. their family. They're doing what I want them to do. Uh, he, he well, let me just. I think that would be just a good thing to read. Um, because, well, go go ahead. Because we we I think we missed this point. Uh, I know I'd never heard it taught in church. Uh, kind of surprised me. And this is kind of an aside, but it, it's just I don't know. It, it fascinated me. So this is Deuteronomy two verses eight and nine. Once my eyes focus. So we went on our way from our brothers, the people of Esau, and who lived in, who lived in Seir, away from Arabah, the road from Eleth to Ezion Geber. And we returned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Um, then God goes on and let me see. And the Lord said to them, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. I will not give you any of the land for a possession, for I've given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amin formerly lived there, the people great and many, and tall like the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they were counted as the Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. And the Horites lived there in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau disposed them and destroyed them um, before, before them and settled in their place as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. So God's saying the Moabites are doing what they're supposed to do. Right. They, they got rid of the Anakim, the Rephaim. The, these are the descendants, again, Genesis 6. And so much of your Old Testament you're going to find keeps going back to Genesis 6. And God said because they did this, they get to keep the land. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the same promise that he's giving to Israel at this point in Judges. If, you, if they would have done this back in chapter 1 like they were supposed to, they would have had the land. So not only did they have the covenant that told them exactly what they were supposed to do, they also had, um, they had an example. Right. And they'd seen God be faithful to this promise. Well, and, and I, I do find that kind of interesting. You know, he says, you know, not, not to mistreat the Moabites because they're family. Mm -hmm. God's been blessing them this whole time. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I find that interesting because you have, you have Israel, and I, I may just be kind of repeating what you're saying here. <laughs> you have Israel getting things so messed up. Mm -hmm. that they are destroying what should be proper relationships with their family and with their neighbors. Right. And, and I think there's, a, there's an interesting parallel there that when we're not 
uh, listening to God and reading the Bible and, and understanding what he's told us to do, we will. We'll destroy our relationships. And, um, and so, yeah, that's a very interesting. Well, and I think so often, again, we, that vilification, I mean, the, of Esau and Ishmael, I and mean, it's carried on through the Moabites. I remember uh, hearing people talk about how Moab was a trash heap. And how evil they were, and because you know they they're a product of incest, mm-hmm. and so um, not only incest but also date rape, and you know their their ancestry wasn't the most shining, and so people kind of point that out, and they you know as a way usually to contrast the fact that Ruth is just oh look at the things that God saved her mm-hmm. from, but it, was that accurate? Well, and I mean I. I I'm starting to think not. I mean, because you really, you have, like I said, you're destroying this family relationship of people that God was wanting to bless. Right. And so really what, and again, and again, and you I'm going to, I mean, <laughs> people are probably tired of me saying this, but you know, it's, we screw it up. God fixes it. I mean, and you see that right down to the great commission because I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to don't realize the great commission's a course correction. It's not a revolution. Right. It's, it's God saying, Go out, be my disciples, and be the blessing to the world that Israel was supposed to be. Correct. And and you and this is one of those things where Ruth is getting drawn back in and mm-hmm. saying, "No, you were always supposed to be part of the family. It's it's a welcome home. It's not it's not destroying the law." Exactly. And you know, and, and if you haven't got that yet, I mean, we've already had Caleb. We've already had Othniel. We we've had people within this book, mm-hmm. outsiders, that God said, "Hey." you're welcome because you welcomed me. Yeah. Well, and and the other thing too, um, and I just want to touch on this. I'm kind of jumping, (laughs) I'm jumping tracks. Um, but you, you mentioned Balaam Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things I think is really, really funny. Um, because again, we talk about people picking and choosing which supernatural event they're going to believe in. Mm -hmm. And so in the, (laughs) you mentioned, uh, Balaam and you've mentioned, the the nephilim and the raphaim <laughs> right and so it's funny to me i have so many sunday school teachers over the years and so many pastors i've talked to who 100 percent believe that the donkey talked for balaam right but would refuse to believe that angels and and humans w- could enter could interbreed yeah. you know it's <laughs> it it's it's like where do you draw where, the line? Where do we draw the line? What's <laughs> what's the difference here? And so I, I'm like again, uh, we we had an interview with with Luke uh, Harrington from uh, yes. from Change My Mind, and I love it. He's like, "Did you think God knew what He was doing when He wrote the Bible? Because if not, <laughs> why are you even bothering with it?" Right. And this is one of the reasons why we're so glad to have Luke be a part of the Raven Creek family is because he's got that attitude and we have a lot of similarities and mm-hmm. thought on some of these things. A lot of differences too, but yeah. uh, you know, that's what makes for an interesting friendship. But yeah. And I think we're going to have to go back at some point and uh, at least do Balaam from numbers because yeah. that's, yeah, I, would, I would like to explore that some more, but anyway, it's so, an awesome story. So I just wanted to throw those two things out there <laughs> that um, I think we, we need to put some more, attention to and and take the bible seriously in in a couple absolutely areas. take the bible seriously and we're talking about the most ludicrous ridiculous story in all of the text well i realize that and it's like yeah welcome to faith and other oddities where we have the most absurd talks about the best book ever right and it's <laughs> well an irreverent look at how to how to be reverent how to be reverent i i don't understand uh 
uh, the, the contradictions that are us. <laughs> so, um, but God put this in the Bible, and it's weird. So it, it is, and and there's so much more weird about it because when we read it, we don't get all of the um, the background and the foundation. We just see the the sensational headliner. Mm-hmm. And so when you look back at this, because not only okay, but Moabites are Moabites are weird adversaries to bring in because they are family. Mm-hmm. They're weird because they're doing the right thing. But now they're partnering with the Anakim. Mm-hmm. They the people they had just defeated. Now they're saying, hey, come work with us to destroy Israel. Mm-hmm. And so that's weird. Well, I mean, if Israel's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're probably pretty lousy neighbors. Right. <laughs> And well, so the Moabites were like, um, these guys come in here and they're not supposed to oppress us, but they are. So mm-hmm. time to turn the tables. Well, and this is this is the story of Judges. Anytime that Israel gets out of step, God and God doesn't necessarily call down a plague from heaven, but he does allow natural consequences to play out. Mm-hmm. And we see this over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So um when the Moabites come in, the first thing they do is they do exactly what the Israelites did. They, mm-hmm. they capture Jericho. Uh, here in this uh, section, it's called the City of Palm. And um, King Eglon, he establishes courts there. We don't know why would he establish courts in this conquered land instead of maintaining some kind of uh, palace in his own land. It may have been he had both. Uh, but mm-hmm. at this point in the story happening, this is where he is. We don't know. There's some more speculation. Did he settle in Jericho as a, you know, kind of a, every phrase I'm thinking of is inappropriate. Uh, yeah. Joshua had, had said anybody who rebuilds would be cursed. Okay. So. Did he do it defiantly? Right. That's, is that your the, question? that's the word. Yes. Much better. Okay. That's more of mom's word than dad's words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we don't know if he was unaware of Joshua's curse upon anyone who rebuilt there. Or if he, it was just direct defiance. And well, you know, my, my question is what kind of land is Jericho? Is it, is it better than where he came from? Um, is it, and, and is it one of those things, like you said, to be defiant and to just be like, look, I, I don't care <laughs> right? what's going on. But apparently, God noticed that too, I guess. <laughs> well, and, and Jericho, you know, it, it was good land. It was a great location, uh, militarily strategic. It had, it was a good place for uh, trade routes. It made sense. It's a logical choice. That's mm-hmm. the reason why it was one of the oldest cities in the world. Right. And so the fact that it, it's still not inhabited would, would be more of an interesting question. Why not? Right. That that's actually more fascinating. So, um, this is, we've got a lot of setup here because not because the writer included it, but because he expected his audience to know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he didn't have to explain all this stuff. And we're, we're having to pause to, to look at this. Even the name Eglon. Um, when we, we read that and we go, well, that's a really weird name. And I do think it's funny that Eglon, even in, in English, kind of has that, that suggestion of an egg. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in Hebrew, it means little bull. Now. Um, Little bull, obviously, that can kind of be, that's kind of affectionate. It can be kind of warrior-like. Right. But if you just change the vowel from egg to ag, now you have round and rotund. So it, it's a play on words. His name. Fatted calf. <laughs> he is the fatted calf. 
and uh, and literally in the story's going to to um demonstrate that um so then we have in verse 15 ehud shows up and ehud like i said he's a left-handed man he's a benjaminite um that's important whenever the bible you know mentions those little random facts mm-hmm. that's rule number three if it's weird it's important why would we be told this um he's the son of gera uh gera's in the genealogies of first chronicles so we know he is a real person so that even supports my idea that this is a real account that this mm-hmm. is not just satire um the ehud clan was actually recognized as a distinct segment of the benjamin tribe mm-hmm. And so they were celebrated because they were such fierce warriors. Okay. And that, that continued. Now, left-handed in the Bible, um, I think a lot of us have heard about, you know, left-handed being kind of uh, looked down upon. And Yeah. Well, and, and that's actually where uh, you get this, this, you know, things that people do that are terrible <laughs> in the name of, of God. Yes. Generally are not reading the Bible and stuff like killing people who are left-handed. Mm-hmm. Obviously not okay with God. <laughs> I mean, if you're actually reading the text. And this happened in history. We, this mm-hmm. is like documented. So, and that, that's the thing. It, we have not only Ehud who's left-handed, we have an entire segment of the Benjaminite tribes mm-hmm. that are left-handed. And uh, they were known for being sling throwers, mm-hmm. and you actually had to use both hands to be able to be a good sling thrower. Right. Um, now, here in Judges, the um, the wording is that it's literally, literally right hand disabled or right hand restricted. Okay. Because there's not a word for left handed. <laughs> it's just, it's not there. And some people have read that to mean, oh, well, you know, something was wrong with his right hand and Mm -hmm. that he had some kind of deformity or injury from a former battle. Probably not, because when you have a whole um, troop of sling throwers who are left handed and that tends to say this was not something that was just accidental. This wasn't a disability. And right. Like I said, it took both hands. Well, and, and we think of sling throwers too. We, we think of the, you know, slingshot with the, you know, the little fork right. and a rubber band, whereas, uh, you know, for, for shooting squirrels or whatever, these, like the sling at the time was a military weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this it, is a totally different animal than that. The, this, the, this is not little rascals. This is where you've got to wind it up and, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and basically using physics to accelerate this rock faster than you could actually throw it. And, and they, I can't remember, was it, was it the Syrians who had an army of sling throwers that were recorded like shattering helmets at like 200 yards or something? I want to say that's correct. Was, um, but don't quote I, us. I, it's, it's been a long time since, I've, since I saw that documentary and I wasn't expecting to be talking <laughs> about this. So, um, but yeah, it was uh, apparently they had like a, a, an army of sling throwers who, who were shattering helmets at yards away. and. This is during like the Bronze Age when a helmet would shatter. Right. Well, so. and there's some really great YouTube videos, and maybe I'll put this in the show notes, of yeah. people who have perfected this art today and the things they can do, the accuracy, it is stunning. I mean, I'd never be able to do it, but it, mm-hmm. it just, it's crazy because, it, you know, they're exploding watermelons and uh, they just splatter everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it, so this was a precision weapon. It was you know this is their long-range arsenal yeah and um 
But, and Malcolm Gladwell actually has a great video on the mm -hmm. David and Goliath thing. We should put it that in the link too. Oh yeah, I don't agree with all of his stuff, but it's worth it's it's worth hearing his perspective. Correct. So yeah. Now in the Septuagint, when they translate from the Hebrew into the Greek, they actually use the word for ambidextrous. So I that makes me think that these were um, and other scholars too that these were people who were trained specifically to use their left hand because sure. even having like this, you know, enough people for a troop out of a tribe that that's going to be kind of not statistically um, probable. That's the word I'm looking mm, for. Right. So um, Eglon, you know, I mean, Ehud has to get to Eglon and he does this, you know, the great ploy as old as the Trojan horse and evidently older. Um, we send a gift mm -hmm. and well, we, we says he has a gift, but, mm -hmm. but before we get into that, I want to, I want to okay. mention like, you know, it, he's familiar enough with how things are going because he can get to meet with the king. Yeah. So, so he's, he's been working for a while trying to get into the, the chambers. He knows the procedure and he knows how to get a weapon in. And he knows the layout of the castle. Mm -hmm. And then there's another question because we were talking about this off mic. He locks the door. Mm -hmm. How does he lock the door? Does he have a set of the keys? How, how does he accomplish this in such a way that the guards don't even notice that he's locked the door? Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he's an insider. And I think if you read this carefully, you do see that. And he, he actually, he uses this idea of bringing the king a gift. And evidently it's a gift large enough. It requires several people to carry it. Okay. And so he's not only getting himself in, he's actually making sure that troops are around Eglon's palace. And he brings him, the, the Hebrew word is amenka. Um, now, amenka could be a tax that a king had levied against the people, or it could be a voluntary uh, gift. But the most typical usage of it in the Old Testament is an offering to God. And so the writer is either um, just using a generic term or it's a fabulous setup because the amenka is often that sacrificial calf. Mm -hmm. So when you said, you know, he's the sacrificial bull, we're we're getting there. Yeah. Well, even before that, I wasn't quite finished with where I was <laughs> oh, going. Sorry. Was that so he so this is something that I heard and I don't know if there's any historical information on this, but that when you were going to see the king, you weren't supposed to carry weapons. Right. And so especially if you're one of the Israelites because you're being, you know, you're being you're, oppressed. You're being oppressed. And so him being left-handed was important because he could put the sword on his right thigh where he wouldn't be searched because right. you don't if you're right-handed you're not going to put a sword on your right thigh precisely and so i wasn't sure if you were getting to that but that we, was we are going to get to that but that was one of the <laughs> things so you know because i thought that was kind of cool because you know you go by the, the guys who are spotting swords and well, yeah uh, he's he clear does. yeah he's fine no big deal and you know no metal detectors at that point so yeah and, and we're and you know he specially constructs this sword mm -hmm. it's a two-edged sword it says it's the length of his thigh, essentially. And so he would be able to walk without it being noticed. He could strap it down and there wouldn't be any kind of disruption to his gait or stride. Mm -hmm. uh, he could kneel and all of this. So, I mean, Ehud's being very deliberate and very skillful in his craft to get this in here. Mm -hmm. Because this took some planning. This was not something he just woke up one day and said, hey, let's do this. Yeah. Well, and, and, and if you... I don't know if you watched uh, Turn Washington Spies. No, I haven't. It's uh, there's a scene um, where uh, I can't remember the, the character's name, but he's the spy. He's he's practicing um, not only with these like uh, what do they call them stiletto knives? The, the little thin blade. Little, yeah, 
where he's got them strapped to his wrist and he's practicing like being able to secure them quickly and being able to get them out quickly. And like he's, you know, it shows. And so it's, you know, you got to imagine he's probably doing a lot of this. Oh, he's yeah. probably, you know, going, okay, I need to be able to get this here. I need it to not move, but I also need to be able to get out quickly. You know, because if, if you had to like spend a lot of time untying it, then, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's kind of useless. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things we don't do with the Bible is we don't think of the fact that political assassins were a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even the zealots, it was said that uh, they could come into the city, stab someone between the lower ribs and be gone before the body hit the ground. And this was happening during Jesus Day mm-hmm. and uh, in protest to the Roman oppression. Yeah. And so the and idea... Back at that time, if you got stabbed in the lungs, you were done. Yeah, forget it. it you aren't recovering from that. Um, and that's, that's the, the thing. People were still being people. And I know we keep saying that too, but yeah. so, yeah, so he, he does, he makes a sword for the specific purpose. And the Bible is very clear. He makes it, mm-hmm. he makes it himself. And so making a sword is not something you just do overnight. Right. And, um, you know, I, I've got friends who've done it. I've got friends who, who've explained the process to me. It's a lot of work. And so this means that he's pretty skilled mm-hmm. because at this point in time, like you said, the helmets would shatter when we're dealing with iron at this point and moving into bronze, you hit that wrong. All of your work's gone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but he does in verse 17, he presents this tri- uh, tribute to Eglon. Um, like I said, it's, it's the Minka. And this is also kind of a sad state of affairs uh, because this could actually be considered a blasphemy that Ehud would take a menka, a sacrifice that was typically reserved for God, and present it to the king of Moab and then go back, who were the kings, their representatives or descendants of the gods. So where is Israel that it's okay to do this? And is it okay? That's the other question. Mm-hmm. To do something like this, even in, you know, trying to accomplish the right thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is God okay with this? And Well, and then you, then you <laughs> add to the fact there's, there's idols in the throne room. Yes. So you're not even just bringing before the king, you're also bringing before the idols. Correct. And so I mean, the, the plot thickens. Um, it, it's in verse 17 that we're told that Eglon is very fat. Uh, the word here is varia, and this is fatted calf. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's that's what it's used for um and this is obviously something we're familiar with when we talk about sacrifice that you bring the fatted calf mm-hmm. and so eglon is identified with this now this doesn't necessarily mean fat as we in today's society think of fat because it, it could just mean well fed mm-hmm. um how fat was he was a is a really good question um and we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of what that may have meant as we progress. So, um, and as you pointed out later on, the, the Moabite warriors are described as being oh, robust. Robust. Is what, what the JBL. JPS. JPS. JBL. Yeah. <laughs> That's a speaker. Yeah. Random. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Just throw an acronym out R- there. Really, You'll sound smart. <laughs> really good speakers. Um so, yeah, so the same words you, so it doesn't necessarily mean like, a, like we would think of fat. Um, it can just mean well-fed because you got to remember in this time to be well-fed, that's significant. Not everybody had that luxury. Um, so when 
they present the the offering, the menka to um to a to Eglon. Ehud sends all the other Israelites away, and then he he turns. This is verses eighteen and nineteen. They he turns to face the idols, and it, there's this impression, and the rabbis discuss this, and many of the commentators discuss this too, that maybe in looking at the idols, um, he's he's suggesting that what he's getting ready to say is important, that he's receiving some kind of divine word from the gods represented by these um, idols. And so when he turns back to, to Eglon and says, hey, I, I have a message for you, mm-hmm. then Eglon's ready to hear. And it says that, you know, Eglon at this point, he's in a cool chamber. He's in the bathroom. Right. <laughs> I mean, let, let's just take the euphemisms out. He, he's in the bathroom. Uh, when he stands up to receive the message, which was proper, uh, if you're going to hear a message from a God, then you, you need to be standing up. But this also makes him very vulnerable to, to Ehud's attack. Um, and the Bible gets, I'm, this is verses 21 through 23. And we're going to read it out of the correct book and chapter. That's that helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, uh, let me have it. So uh, chapter three, verses 21 through 23, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust into his, uh, that's Eglon's belly. And then the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors with the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So. There, yeah. It's I'm not- <laughs> pretty graphic, and, and and the the um the Hebrew commentators on this in the in the in the Hebrew Study Bible are just brutal, right? I mean, uh, let me find it right here. Um, this is uh, this is just it's it's terrible. Um, so um, it says Eglon expects to get a divine oracle, but receives a divinely sanctioned stabbing. It's, I mean, it's just like, yeah, brutal. And then, and then later on, and I will, I may be getting ahead of you, but when the, when the guards come back and they're like, well, maybe he's relieving himself. Well, the, uh, let me find this, uh, the, their other comment on this, the, the Jewish commentators, Eglon is indeed relieving himself in that his guts are spilling out. The entire story partakes of vulgar humorousness, debasing the enemy. Yeah. And so it's like, it's there's no <laughs> oh, there's no holding back on the these commentators here. Well, and that's the thing the the rabbinic and that, when you're talking about the gut spilling out, uh, that's verses 24 and 25. Uh, the rabbis even attribute the smell as being divinely ordained to help provide Ehud with more time to get away. Right, and so even that God would allow this to to. Uh, be so successful through such base means Mm -hmm. and that that's the thing about this This is what makes it so i don't want to use the word offensive but it's it it doesn't set well with our modern sensibilities no it's it's not proper at all and so yeah no i think it's funny now here's here's a quick aside story so you mentioned (laughs) that ehud left and locked the doors behind him Mm -hmm. and you're so Excuse popular me. today. Yeah, 
I forgot to turn off my ringer on my computer. <laughs> um, so anyway, no, we're talking about, you know, Ehud left and locked the door behind him. Now, I actually, um, I was working at a place and there was this, uh, there's a Southern Baptist pastor who, and, and nothing to harp on Southern Baptist, that's just his denomination. Mm-hmm. But he was he was talking about how when it says that he went past the idols, that that saying that he was going back to where the the cool chamber was, where the restroom was, and then he escaped through the the ductwork, the indoor plumbing that the they indoor had. Plumbing, and you know, I'm thinking, well, I think you might have watched Shawshank Redemption <laughs> one too many times, but you know, it it says that he left and closed the doors behind him. Yeah, and it, but. Then, then the then further, further explanation from this pastor was like how crazy it was that he would have to be breaking so many laws, and he he would have actually been becoming unclean by crawling through the sewage, and how sin how crazy it was that God's using such a sinful act to deliver the people. And I'm like, and now knowing like the difference between like being sinful and ceremonially un, ceremonially unclean. Right. Knowing the difference between those things, I'm like, okay, this story makes a whole lot more sense if that's what would have happened. But then I just, yeah. Re- upon review, I was like, well, that was just way off. <laughs> so if you ever hear that, um, we're pretty sure he did not crawl through the yeah. sewer. Yeah. It says he left by the door and he locked the door. And, and the key thing is in verse 25, because the guards, after they waited and they waited until they were embarrassed and you know they're, they're starting to worry, wait a minute, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. I mean, that had to be what was going through their mind. You know, did he eat the wrong thing for dinner? Do, does he really need this much time? And, mm-hmm. and you know, they're really having to face the humanity of their ruler, this, this divine being that they had been serving or this representative of a divine being that they had been serving. Right. And so now they're confronted with, with his humanity at a different level. And it says specifically in verse 25, they took the key to unlock the door. Mm-hmm. So... Again, at that point in time, how did Ehud get out? Where did he get this? This is subterfuge at the same level that, you know, if you watch something today that uh, about getting into the White House, this is the same level of technology for them that we would see on TV shows today. Right. And because. Well, not technology, but the same level of deceit. Well, well, I'm saying for the it was the cutting edge technology for their day. And so okay. this is, you know, the cutting edge tech versus the cutting edge technology for our day. Sure. Okay. And so he he's making use of it. He He's aware of what's going on. And that's that's kind of huge, because like you said, it goes back to that question. How how good of a relationship does he have with with Eglon? How, how well do the guards know him? I mean, evidently, Eglon felt secure enough to let this guy be with him alone. Yeah. Who does that? I yeah. mean, the president of the United States doesn't do that. Yeah. I mean, so, so again, yeah, this wasn't his first time in. Yeah. So um, he, um, the whole point of the story, it really boils down to the Eglon, the, the little bull, the bull who received the menka, he received that sacrificial gift, now becomes the sacrificial gift. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that full reversal and that theme of reversal uh, that's so prevalent in the Bible. That what you expect is not what you're going to get. Right. And now, as you may have guessed, this the story's problematic. I mean, the, there's serious issues with it. Um, because one thing, where's God in all of this? Mm-hmm. We've had this whole story 
God's not been mentioned once. Right. And everything is dependent on how clever is Ehud mm-hmm. and his ability. You know, he's a super spy and he, he does all of this stuff. Um, and he's so, what I find interesting are like the, the little subtle deceptions, like, you know, being smart enough to look at the idols before approaching Eglon. Um, that, that says a lot. That tells me more about his, his personality and his ability, you know, his skill at subterfuge than even hiding the knife. Right. And so, um, so we, like I said, we've had no mention of God up to this point. Now in verses uh, 26 through 30, Ehud actually, he escapes, he sounds the shofar and he rallies the people together and he says, follow me for the Lord has given your enemies and the Moabites into your hands. First time we have any mention of God. Mm-hmm. And so he, he is now declaring this is a righteous battle. This is a righteous war. Right. And before this, I mean, yeah, they were being oppressed, but they've been oppressed for 18 years. Why now? Right. So, um, Ehud, he, he's not really presented as a holy dude that you need to, to revere. He's, he's a straight up assassin. Right. And his troops kill 10,000 Moabites. Now that's probably, um, symbolic. Symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's not like they had any kind of technology to really to keep track of this. And the, Ehud's uh, story is not popular anywhere in any circle of Bible studies because there's not a lot of theological messaging to get out of it. Right. And, you know, you don't want to tell your kids, hey, here's this God, the guy that God called and I want you to live a life like, you know. Well, I mean, well, is there not a lot of theological messaging or is there just not a lot of obvious theological messaging? Right. Well, yeah, but either way, it doesn't translate well into a flannel <laughs> graph. So, I mean, as a matter of fact, I remember uh, as a kid, we were studying through Judges and um, the the teacher skipped the story. Yeah. And she refused to even teach it because it disturbed her too much. Well, it's a disturbing <laughs> story. And now something I was thinking about last night um, like you do. Um, I was, I was thinking about just the, the violence and again, the conquest, um, you know, and, we, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I was thinking about this because there is a lot of violence. There is a lot of killing of, of people and there's a lot of war going on that God says to do. And I was, I was really like, just, I was working it out in my mind because mm-hmm. I'm still working out. Like, how do you reconcile the violence in the Old Testament right. versus the the message of the New Testament? Where where's the dividing line? And but you know, it's like there are things like you were talking about, like the driving out of the Nephilim, driving out of people who worship other gods, mm-hmm. things like that. And I I'm, I keep thinking about that. Well, it's like, well, where where do we draw the line here? What's the difference? And then I had to come back to, you and it was like I was I was like I, the connection just got made. It's like, well. We are not, we're not fighting. Again, Paul talks about this. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, Paul says we don't (laughs) wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. But at the same time, Jesus has already defeated them. So we don't have to physically go out and clear land to make room for, for, uh, make room, quote unquote, for God in the Mm -hmm. places where other deities would be ruling. Right. Jesus already won. He's, he's done the 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 battle he's, it is he's finished he's got the victory and so that's really where it is 
is that as the church, we're not being called to, we're not being called to clear the way for the Messiah. Right. And so that's the big difference. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we need to pay attention to that. We are not, we are not the replacement of Israel. <laughs> um, I don't know how far we want to go on that, but I, think- I, I, I have two points to make and, and I don't want to get too bogged down in that, but since it's, you brought it up, it, this is a huge problem in today's church. America is not Israel. The American church is not Israel. Um, Israel as a nation, uh, we can, that's a whole other issue as far as today's uh, representation of that. I don't want to get into all of that, but here's the thing. When Paul talks about us being grafted in, mm-hmm. we've done enough farming. One of the things you know, if you graft a branch onto a root, you don't want the root to die. Right. That your work's pointless. Mm-hmm. He also talks about adoption. And, you know, if I go out and adopt a kid today, I'm not going to go kill Lauren and Lydia. Um, you know, Fair. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is not how it works. And so the idea that Israel is somehow this evil failure that God has abandoned and we've stepped up to take their place. That's totally incohesive with what Paul taught. Oh yeah. He says it in (laughs) Romans that God didn't fail. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we can get into that too, but I mean, it's, but it's just, yeah, the the church is not replacing Israel. We are not called to clear the way for the Messiah. Mm -hmm. The Messiah actually under the new covenant has cleared the way for For us. us. (laughs) And that's actually reversal. Yeah. And, and it's, it's whenever you get to thinking about this stuff, it just, it's amazing. So I just, sorry, I wanted to throw that out there because we are talking a lot about violence and that was, that was just something that it all kind of clicked into place for me last night in a way where I was, because I was thinking about, because we don't talk about that in the church hardly Mm -mm. Mm -mm. about how we reconcile the violence of the Old Testament with the message of the New Testament. Right. And, and that's again, where you get into, uh, was it, uh, Marcion, mm-hmm. uh, talking about, you know, there's two God, there was the God of the Old Testament and then the God of the New Testament. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've got to watch that, that it's the same God. It was the same, mm-hmm. uh, same plan for redemption. But during the first part, he had a nation that was his portion to prepare the way for the Messiah. Well, and we need to remember too, Israel, they aren't always the out and out aggressors. I think a lot of times when we talk about uh, the violence of the Old Testament, it's like these Israel's the bad guy just going around beating up people. Um, you know, the Moabites came in and oppressed them. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they partnered with the Rephaim and the Nephilim to oppress them here in this story. Right. It, well, and even, even if, it, like we said earlier, even if the Moabites were doing this in response to what mm-hmm. Israel had done, it's because Israel was doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So again, we're not indicting God right. with some of this stuff. Right. We're, you know. This is natural consequences to, a- to action. Yeah. That God spells it out. And this is part of Deuteronomy. It's very much a part of that covenant in Deuteronomy for Israel. And we can talk about how that plays in the prosperity gospel. Uh, we won't. But the idea in, that's presented in Deuteronomy is if you do these things, if you love me, hold fast to my law, don't make covenant with the people in the land, mm-hmm. I will bless you. Mm-hmm. You don't do these things. I'm going to curse you. Right. It's that simple. And God was very clear. But like any kid, Israel being the the little teenage son that he was at this point as a nation, he's got to test the limits. And, right. and I really kind of think that judges is Israel testing the limits. 
is God really going to be true to his word? And I think, you know, one of the things as a parent you learn, your kids want to know that you're going to keep your word good or bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I say bad, I'm saying, you know, are you going to discipline the way you said you're going to discipline? There's a sense of security that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we see that played out because when God is talking to Israel throughout this book, it's very parental. Right. And I, I, I find that interesting. So, so sorry to go off on a huge <laughs> tangent there, but um, I just wanted to play that out there. So let, uh, what else you got? <laughs> uh, okay. So then after we get through Ehud, um, we have this one little verse that's just like sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> it, it's like, what the heck is that doing there? And so I'm going to read the entire account of this particular guy, uh, judge. <laughs> of Shamgar. Shamgar, son of Anath, or Ben-Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he saved Israel. Okay. Riveting. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a a lot of information packed into this, not as much information as I would like. Um, There never is. There there never is. I want to know more. Uh, So the easy stuff. It's weird. There's no story. There's no explanation. I think everybody gets that. An ox goad is a wooden stick with a metal tip. And so it's kind of almost like a spear. It's like, it's like a cattle prod. It's a cattle prod. A, yeah. Yeah. For poking but, goats. And it's got a metal tip so that you can, you can actually make your point. Um, he is. I'm sorry. Oxes, not goats. goats Oxen. Yeah. I bet you could use on goats too. Well, probably. <laughs> well, you got be a little it, quicker. It's, well, it's the <laughs> fact that it's called ox goad. Like, I think had the goat, goat. sound in my head. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's her. Yeah. Yeah. So. And we grew up on a farm. We, we, you know. We know the difference know. <laughs> between a goat and a goat, uh, ox. Yeah. It's quite large, actually. The difference and the ox. Correct. So, we, this is what he used. But, I mean, when you think about the design, that's kind of like a spear. Because you've got the metal rod with with the metal uh, wooden rod with the metal tip, mm-hmm. and so you can see how it would easily be a good weapon. Sure, um, he is a deliverer. He that that same word that uh, Yeshav, uh, based on the same root that Joshua and Jesus' name in Hebrew would have been based on. So savior. Okay, uh, he's not a he's not a judge. Uh, you know, he's not ruling over Israel at any point in time. He just kills Philistines. So. There's, there's a distinction there. And I think, you know, we talked about there's uh, 12 judges and seven deliverers in, mm-hmm. in, in uh, the book of Judges. He is mentioned in the Song of Deborah, which we're going to get to at some point, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. So we think he was a contemporary of Deborah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the same time, um, he killed 600 Philistines. Go Shamgar. Uh, so that's the easy stuff. And um, the, the thing is, now we've got to figure out who he was. Uh, the name Shamgar is not a Canaanite name. It's not a Hebrew name. It, it's actually a Hurrian name. Hurrian? Hurrian. Okay. H-U-R-R-I-A-N. Okay. Who are the Hurrians? Do That's you have any information on that? That's a really good question. Uh, we're still learning about them. Um, we know a little bit. They, um, they wrote in a cuneiform. That's the wedge-shaped writing uh, script. Uh, we're still working out. Scholars are still deciphering it. So maybe we'll know some more uh, later. Uh, they seem to be located primarily around an area that you know, we know as Syria today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a Hurrian excavation going on. You can still see it. Uh, it's Urkesh. 
uh, in Syria. It's one of our oldest known hymns ever written uh, is the Hurrian hymn number six, and that's written to the goddess Nikel. And it was composed about the 14th century, so about the same time, roughly, as the Book of Judges. Um, we know that during the time of Judges, they were fighting uh, with the Hittites. Now, beyond that, we don't have a whole lot of information. Uh, so we're, we're having to kind of fill in blanks here. We want to be careful when we do this not to go too far. So, you know, take everything here with a grain of salt. These are kind of just things that are suggested from archaeology in relationship to the Bible. So yeah, and I'm I'm checking the commentary here. It basically doesn't tell you anything more than what we <laughs> right. read in the verse, other than guy's name is Shamgar. He killed Philistines similar to the way Samson did. Yeah, he's mentioned in the Song of Deborah, and that's it. Like that's like basically everything you just said. Yeah, right here. well, and because he does kill uh, the Philistines like Samson does, it's very similar. Some people have said that this was actually either Samson's account is based on Shamgar's exploits or Shamgar is based on Samson and somehow they got separated in the oral tradition. Um, I, but, I, but is there any linguistic root between the names no, that there's we can no even connection. Tra attract to yeah, bring that in? No, but here's the thing. If Shamgar was not Jewish, which the name seems to suggest, right. then um, a lot of times the Jewish commentators wanted to make their heroes Jewish. They don't like the outsiders taking the spotlight. So that's one of the things you do have to watch. You know, you've got to watch bias. And Christians, you know, we we skew it other directions. So I'm not, you know, pointing fingers, but that is something that I've seen as I've studied this. Um, so kind of went over the Shamgar part. The Ben Anath, it, it really means son of Anath or devoted to Anath. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, anytime you see Ben, mm -hmm. B-E-N, at the beginning of a name in, the, in the Bible, it's going to be the son, son of. Yes. Like, uh, like Mac. Yeah, in, in, in Scottish. Scottish mm -hmm. or Mick in Irish. Yeah, got to make sure you get those vowel sounds there a little different. Yeah. So uh, Anath is another name for Asarte. So this is another reason why Shamgar is prog problematic. Because, you know, how can you have a judge who's devoted to Asarte? Mm-hmm. Well, he's a well, he's not a judge. He's a deliverer. Deliver. Yeah. And Asarte during this point was very, very popular with Egypt. And we know that um, this is this is important. And we're I'm going to come back around to that. Uh, she's a warrior goddess. We brought that up before. Mm. Uh, she's she was also the protector of Pharaoh. Uh, she's even said to have been Pharaoh's nursemaid. That she actually suckled him in her bosom and protected him. Uh, Ramses the fourth had a mercenary troop that fought against the sea people. Now the sea people are the Philistines and the Phoenicians, and they also and this this troop included the Hurrians. So this is the reason why knowing that Anath was important in Egypt was um, okay. at, at this time it plays in. So uh, what we have, we actually have bronze arrowheads in Canaan, or what would have been known as Canaan. Sure that were part of these Egyptian troops of uh, weaponry. And these bronze arrowheads have the name of the soldier, a Hurrian name, Ben Anath. And so this special elite fighting force, what the speculation is right now, is that as Pharaoh's fighting force, 
their patron goddess would have been Anath or Asarte. Hmm. And so we know that Egypt had these troops in at the time. You know, the Philistines were settled in uh, Canaan by the Egyptians. We talked about that last time. So now we're starting to see... So, so Ben Anath would have been more of a title than any reference to yeah, parentage. Yeah, yeah, kind of this is my patron saint. This is the, the one who's going to support and protect me on the battlefield. And so well, he says patron saint. I'm like, it's like saying he's like a Franciscan, <laughs> right? like, but different. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite side of the field. <laughs> so, yeah. And so what we think happened is that this is that Shamgar Ben Anath was could have been one of Pharaoh's elites uh, fighting against the Philistines and probably in service to Pharaoh because the Philistines did drive the Egyptians out, um, probably was in Canaan fighting for Pharaoh, but then it helped the Israel. Israelites. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of having to, to do some speculation. Well, yeah. I mean, well, it, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of an example of, of, of saying that something saved you, even though you had nothing to do with it. Right. Kind of thing. Well, like, it's some- God using everything. Right. And that's, that's the interesting part of this. We've had Othniel, We've had Ehud and Shamgar. They're, they're our first three prophets. Othniel is a Canaanite. Prophets or judges? Uh, judges, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry, judges. Uh, Othniel is a Canaanite. So he, mm-hmm. a Canaanite, he's not part of the family. Uh, Ehud doesn't mention God at all. Right. And matter of fact, the Canaanite Until the very end. Yeah. The Canaanite is way more theological than the Israelite. Mm-hmm. And then we have Shamgar, who's this Philistine. We're starting Egyptian. Uh, sorry, Hurian. Hurian. Sorry, Hurian. I don't know why I'm getting my words mixed up. Sorry, right. but I the, just want to make sure it's clear on the other end. Right. We're- so, <laughs> Canaanite, Israelite, Hurian, and so we're we're starting to get this idea that God is going to use what and who He wants to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there's no. He, he's not worried about ethnicity or nationality. He he's getting the job done. Mm-hmm. And every judge along the way and every savior along the way, what we're going to find is they don't fit, they don't fit the mold. They, they are so counter to what we should expect. Sure. And that, that's the fun part of this is when we see that, you know, God is, he's exceeding and smashing expectations left and right. Mm-hmm. And Matter of fact, one of the, the suggestions about why this account is so short is maybe there's a level of embarrassment that God had to, you know, there was nobody in Israel that he had to bring in an outsider. Bring an outside, yeah, had to. And, yeah. and so, you know, it, it happened, but we aren't going to, we aren't really going to talk about it. Now, the other thing that, that is brought up is perhaps this was added to bring our numbers those 12 judges to the number 12, right. that our deliverers be at seven. And so that uh, we have the right numeric values to mm-hmm. convey those theological ideas, because 12 is, is uh, divine government, right? and uh, seven is completion. Sure. So it, there's one little verse, and you know, I could have spent weeks even going further with my uh, research on this, because when you start looking at the Hurrians and the Egyptians and the Philistines, mm-hmm. and 
it gets super fascinating and because you really do see how this is set in a historical setting. It's not just some randomness that's happening outside of, you know, space and time in some kind of weird little limbo Mm -hmm. that, but this is, this is, you know, real life or it was real life. And so, yeah, that's, that is very interesting. And especially because it is so bizarre and such a small piece of the Bible that there, but it, it raises so many questions. Right. And from here on out, our judges are, their stories are going to get more involved. Right. And so this is where we're going to, uh, we've got Deborah coming up next week, and then we'll uh, be getting into uh, Gideon and mm-hmm. Samson. You know, those are our major judges that everybody wants to talk about when we do teach this book. And we're going to look well, at them. They're stories without, they're, they're stories that are clearer stories. Definite narratives. Definite narratives, and they're not they're not as uh, base. Um, <laughs> well, it, they can be told in a way that makes them not as base. Fair uh, enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So, and we're going to talk about it with Deborah um, some of the aspects of her and and JL's story that get cleaned up. I, I, I have no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah, that's yeah. I can't wait to get into some of that stuff because that's just. I mean, it's just out there. It is. And, well, and I don't understand, uh, you know, well, I do understand. But one of the things that bothers me is when we avoid uh, particularly sexual issues as presented in the Bible, we wind up doing a disservice to people because we aren't teaching them how to be good stewards of their sexuality. And we act like it's something horrible and dirty mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. God is unaware of. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, even <laughs> among married people, we treat it like that. Like, oh, Yeah. God doesn't know what we're going to do tonight. We can't pray before we go to bed. Uh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Well, well, and it, you know, it was kind of funny because I, I was listening to another Christian podcast that's a husband and a wife. And on one of the episodes, they were like, not to get too graphic, but, and then they said something about, they mentioned that they have sex. It wasn't even like, <laughs> it wasn't even they mentioned what they did. It was like, they mentioned the fact that they even had sex. And that apparently was just horribly graphic. You could hear the kids screaming in the background. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> well, apparently they record when the kids are asleep, but you know, it was. <laughs> so yeah, we, we have, uh, we have proof. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, I don't know. Um, it, I think that by studying the stories, like when we do go into Deborah, that, sexual sin a sexual violence is not forgotten by god and you know i I know i brought that up in genesis but you know i I don't think we can talk about it enough because i know so many women who have been hurt by being told that now they're inferior somehow for having had any kind of sexual contact positive or negative Mm -hmm. uh, before or after they became christians or aware and so by bringing this up and, and talking about the way the bible is so straightforward and we're the ones who are uncomfortable with sexuality. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not God. It's not the Bible. And so I, I think we need to bring that out more and allow people to engage the text at those levels to heal those hurts and to empower to be good stewards of our sexuality. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's something that, that, you know, there's, I'm sure there can be a whole series we could do on just that. Oh, yeah. And we may eventually. I wrote a whole book. You did write a whole book. <laughs> Um, so anyway, um, Angie, what else you got? Is that, I think we're going to call it good there. If yeah, we've cause, got... cause the next one, yeah, the next section we go into talking about Deborah, Deborah. Mm-hmm. and that's going to take at I mean, least one episode, at least one episode <laughs> just to get through the narrative. Yeah. Uh, and then, then we've got the song of Deborah, which once we get there, we're, we, 
might be on the song for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, so I was reading through that. And I'm like, there are questions here. <laughs> Absolutely. And if anybody wants to read ahead, um, let me suggest not only if you read um, Judges 4 and 5, which is the narrative of Deborah but all, and the song of Deborah, go back to Exodus 14 and 15 and see what connections you might notice from those passages. And uh, by the time we get to the song of Deborah, we'll, we'll be exploring that some, mm-hmm. but you know, just, just a little fun brain game to see maybe what you come up with on your own before you get the cheat sheet. Yeah. So. Well, cool. I'm, I'm excited. We're into the action part of the Bible <laughs> and uh, this, you know, this should be a comic book I, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. So um, everyone out there, thanks for listening. Um, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. I thought this was one of the more fun episodes we've done mm-hmm. so far. Um, yeah, be sure to join us. Uh, be part of the conversation at Raven Creek SC, where you can, that's the handle on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're on one of those at least a, once a day. Right. Um, so shoot us a message. If you have questions, want to be part of the conversation, um, we'd love to have you. If you're curious about anything else that Raven Creek Social Club is doing, Check it out at ravencreeksc.com, where you can find commentarians. You can find our show with companion post and uh, our new show. Uh, well, you honestly can find resources on that. And then you can also find our newest show uh, to partner with us. Um, now, Emily and I, we're not part of the production, but we really like uh, Luke as a host and as a person, mm-hmm. uh, probably as a person first and then as a host. <laughs> I should put those in the right order. And, um, but we're glad to have him on, but go check out Change My Mind. And uh, that can also be found at Raven Creek SC and hopefully soon wherever else you can find quality podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.